Today, as I have already uh, begun the service to say, this is the first Sunday of Advent, and Advent has that twofold anticipation or expectation, not only of the birth of Christ, but of His return. And we will light candles each week. We will sing probably some Christmas songs, or at least, and Aaron did a wonderful job of tying these in on Christ's second coming. Uh, we will read familiar texts. We will say prayers that for some of you will say, ho-hum. We do this every year. Here we go again. It's like Groundhog Day at church. But, so you go, I didn't hear an amen, but some of you were looking at your shoes. As I read the gospel readings that are set aside uh, this year for Advent, and that's what I want to be looking at for the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, as I look at these readings for us, over and over the word wild came to my mind. Wild, wild, wild. And I mean that in every aspect of the definition of the word wild. If I was with a younger person, and who knows, this may not be a contemporary term these days, but there was a time if you said, hey, that's wild. That was something you liked, or it was something that was well-received. Wild could mean untamed. It could be in the nature, in the natural, if you will. Wild can be angry. Wild can be fearful. Wild can be without restraint. Wild can mean not domesticated. That's the Advent season that I want us to begin over the course of these next four weeks. It's a wake-up call. Advent is a wake-up call for the church. Now, at this time, I typically would have a video clip that would illustrate what I wanted to say, wild Advent, and they just didn't have a wild Advent. You know, this is things that come out of my mind, partly due to an 18-hour drive that turned in, or typically a 15-hour drive that turned into, it felt like a 36-hour drive. Um, those of you who heard last week, I'm in the process of moving my mother and sister here, so, and poor Brenda is beside me in that moving van. Um, so did I tell you, 7.6 miles to the gallon. I burned $500 of gas. But that's a sermon for another day. Wild. Why would anybody drive on the Wednesday prior to Thanksgiving? You're not heeding the warnings. Think that through in this Advent season. Okay, the video clip I would show you, but I didn't, and I won't, is Wild America. If you've ever, it's a, I think Disney owns the rights to it now, and and the young man that was in, Tim, the tool man, you know, remember that show? Jonathan Taylor Thomas, is that his name, something like that? He's the lead role, and it's a true story of three boys, three brothers from Fort Smith, Arkansas. I think it's, like I said, 1997 or so, Uh, but they're about my age, actually, I think some older, some younger. Uh, these days, and um, these three boys take off on a cross-country trip, and this movie, uh, comedy, semi-drama, if you will, uh, recount the true story of their life going out to film nature, 
going out to film things in the wild and uh, all the craziness that they do. And the younger brother, uh, who is still doing photography, he says those were the golden years. You know, true story. Those were the golden years of making those videos because he said in the time which we grew up, there were only four stations. I thought, where did you live? They only had three where I grew up. How many of you had four stations when you were a kid? Well, <clears throat> and if you're over 50 and you had four stations, yeah, most of us just like the big three. But in any event, they went out to film nature in the wild. And, and I thought to myself, rather than playing a clip, what if you challenge the congregation to go out with a camera this week, and I'm not expecting anybody to do this, but film Christians in action, Christians in nature, Christians in the wild. Because we're domesticated Christians, we're in, in this building. You're house dogs right now. You know how to behave. Well, maybe you don't. Have you ever had an acting up animal in your house, you know? Maybe you've had those in church as well. But Advent causes us to have this wild expectation that the hope that the world could not produce has been manifest in God's Son, Jesus. And even when they sacrificed Him, they wouldn't accept Him. The grave could not contain Him. And Advent stirs in your heart to say, He's coming again. And you best be ready. Not in a Santa Claus fashion that we say get ready because Santa Claus is coming. But be ready all days that Christ is coming again. Wild times are ahead. And you will find the word wild in each of my sermons in these coming weeks. Wild times ahead. Luke 21, in each of these sermons, the Gospel of Luke is the text for uh, the lectionary this year. And it changes every year. But this year it's uh, Luke 21. We're going to look at verses 25 through 36. Uh, Christian author uh, Diana Bass, some of you may have read some of her books. She says that this first reading is like a slap in the face. It's waking up sleepy church members. It's waking up domesticated Christians. They use the word I used earlier. It is causing you to think about the end times, because so many of us are content to be happy with right now. Oh, yeah, we've been in the midst of a pandemic, and it scared us a lot, but the Lord's going to come someday, and we don't think much about that. Well, we'll see in these verses that there's misfortune, there's calamity, there's chaos, and fear will grip the people. But to that, Christ gives some very clear guidance. This is a part, if you're familiar with the Gospels, most of you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels. John is a little bit different. He writes with a different style of Greek in the, in, the, in the original language. But these three are often very similar telling of different events in Christ's life. This is called the Olivet Discourse. It is from a sermon on the Mount of Olives. And although in Luke, he does not give us the location of being the Mount of Olives for this particular passage, it actually takes place after the disciples have been talking about the temple. It is still by most theologians and Bible commentators considered a part of the Olivet Discourse. So here he begins, it, because in that sermon, he talks about end times. And we're picking up in the midst of it, but... I want us to just look at these uh, verses today in context. Verse 25. 
There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we don't like to talk about the second coming because so many of us have things we want to do that take priority over you. That's the basic truth of it. Many times we'd rather watch that football game, have that meal, celebrate that birthday, honor that graduate, have that wedding, see that baby born, buy that house, drive that new car. And we put off the end time thinking. But Lord, you are over all. And we can read the signs of the times. Just as the leaves show us that spring and summer is near, can we not see that you're coming again as soon? Wake us up with some turbulent times and remind us to be confident in the hope of Christ that he's coming again for the redeemed. I pray we count ourselves in those numbers because of our faith in your son, Jesus. Speak to those today who need to hear your word, for we ask it in Christ's name, amen. So first of my two points, it's funny, you know, I've been here pushing, March will be seven years, I think, yeah. And I've gone from three-point sermons in the past year to two-point sermons. Maybe another seven years will be one-point sermons, and seven more years will be no point at all, yeah. Some of you said they've been pointless forever. So the first one today is a warning signs, if you got that up there already. Thank you. 
Uh, if you go back to verse 8, that's why, it, once again, if, if I didn't set you up enough, this is talking, the, the conversations, the disciples have come, uh, saw the temple, and they're admiring the temple and all the wonderful stones. And if you've seen any type of ancient civilization cities, it was amazing what could be done with hand tools and brute force labor. I mean, it, the buildings. And they're admiring this, and, and they're saying, you know, God, look at, or Jesus, look at all this stuff. And he tells them, hey, let me tell you, it's not going to all be that way. In fact, it's, they're all going to come tumbling down. So if you look at verse 8, he says, watch out that you are not deceived. Because if he, well, let me back you up then so you understand. I, I'm, in my mind, I knew where you should be. But he's telling them that even all these wonderful stones, they're, they're going to be torn down. And, you know, this is going to be the end of things that happen. And they say, well, teacher, when will these things happen? What will be the sign that they're about to take place? And when is this end of time going to happen? He says, well, watch out that you're not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and that the time is near. Do not follow them. We've lived, those of you who are old enough to remember Jim Jones, I think that was about my junior or senior year of college, and the massacre that he inflicted on his followers. David Koresh at Waco, some of you all long enough to remember that. There are many who have claimed to be the Messiah, or at least those who knew Christ better than anyone else, and they challenge people to follow them. And Jesus is saying, don't be deceived. Don't follow after these false prophets. And then in verses 9 and 10, he speaks of war and natural disasters. There'll be wars. There'll be natural disasters. And even Jerusalem, he says, will be destroyed in verses 20 through 24. Then we come up, and, and none of that is very comforting, right? <laughs> How about the end of times, Lord? When you're going to come back and, you know, shelter us and protect us? I mean, that's what you'd want to hear if you're one of the disciples. Well, when all these buildings are being knocked down, surely, Lord, you'll be there to embrace us. And he just keeps telling them more woes and, you know, bad things are happening. Even Jerusalem will be destroyed. And then we take up with our verses today that we began on verse 25, and he says that, even the sun, the moon, and the stars will give signs, warning signs, if you will. Even the sea will signal fear to the nations. Well, as an old VFR pilot, I will tell you that uh, VFR visual flying rules, not IFR instrument flying rules, I only flew when the weather was nice. Yeah, I would go outside. In fact, as I'm driving today, and I knew I was going to say that, this is a wonderful day to go flying. But some of you have seen, in fact, we came through rain on the way here uh, Wednesday. Those were days I wouldn't want to be flying. And if you're a sailor, although, and I know I have some retired Navy in here, you'll say that, you know, the sea doesn't bother me. But sailors and pilots use the same system of looking at the heavens and looking at the stars and, you know, doing some observations not only for where they are, but also predicting the weather to come. And salty sailors and even experienced pilots can sometimes become complacent. The church has known about Christ's return since his ascension in Acts 1. Since Jesus went up into heaven after his resurrection, we have known that he's coming again. Yet we have become complacent. We've fallen asleep at the wheel. And Advent comes and says, wake up. Advent is a wake-up call for the sleeping church. 
And because we've, yeah, we got excited back during Easter, the resurrection, we get all excited about that. And I mean, if you, just take First Baptist Church Hill Hotis right here. We get excited about vacation Bible school to see youth coming in and see young people making professions of faith. And we're excited right now because, in fact, here's a, you know, an announcement. Next Sunday evening is our first presentation of Out of Bethlehem. So uh, come back for our, our children's uh, presentation of the gospel to us next Sunday night. But we get excited about those different things, but many times, just like people in church, we fall asleep. We become complacent. Advent says, wake up. This week, I read an article by uh, Chip Ingram. Chip Ingram uh, is a prominent pastor, theologian, writer. Uh, We actually, I think two years ago, he was one of the presenters at the conference we went to in Dallas, and I I sat in one of his uh, seminars. And I mean, he's a sharp guy. But he wrote this this little clip I want to read to you uh, just a few weeks ago about um, the impact of the pandemic on the church. Because we all know. I mean, look at our numbers. You know, churches across the globe have suffered because of the pandemic. And he wrote, and I quote, could this crisis and tragedy be our chance? Could it be our wake-up call? Could this be the mercy of God pleading and warning his wayward children to stop being conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we might test and experience what the will of God is, what is good and pleasing and perfect? His will. Can you imagine, he goes on, the impact of millions and millions of us who are followers of Christ if we would simply respond to the pandemic by forsaking our religiosity, that's a hard word for me to say, religiosity, our prejudice, our idols, and return to our first love, Jesus, with an unanswering or an unending type obedience. To his word. Wake up. Let the pandemic be a wake up to us to do more for Christ with the time we have left in this world. You know, Spencer and I, this is my youngest son, we have this ongoing game uh, called Wake Up. He's been hard to wake up since prehistoric times. <laughs> high school. He had, we had a good one in high school. Are you up? I mean, we have a two story house. He'd stamp his feet on the floor, and I immediately must roll those legs back into the bed. And even now, are you up? Oh, yeah, I'm up. You got your clothes on? Oh, yeah, man, I'm dressed. Well, come on down. Uh, hang on. It'd be, it'd be a little while, you know. So the church is the same way. Wake up. Are you awake, church? Oh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're ready. We're, we're up. We're up. But Jesus gives some very clear directions, and it's the same way you wake anyone up. He says in verse 28, stand up. When these things begin to take place, stand up. That's the best way to wake anybody up. Make them stand up. Now, I know there are sleepwalkers, and you could probably, you know, debunk what I'm trying to say. And then he says, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Stand up and lift up your head. In the midst of all this pandemonium, stand up because your redemption is drawing near. 
And then he uses the parable of a fig tree. And it's not the typical fig tree. I know it seemed like Jesus had a thing about fig trees. You know, he curses a fig tree because it wasn't producing fruit. And there are some theologians say it wasn't the right time of year for it to produce. But here he uses a fig tree as a wall clock, if you will, or as a calendar. He says, look at a fig tree or look at any of the trees. Now, he didn't, he wasn't in Texas because they're green here. It seems like year round. But he said, when you start seeing the leaves coming out, you know that summer is coming. You, you can read the signs because, in fact, if you're from where I am, the Midwest, and it gets cold, everything dies. The leaves turn beautiful colors in the fall. They all fall off. And in the spring, you start to see the leaves budding and coming out. You know, you see little things and flowers, and you see all this green. And you can say, hey, you know, it's the right season. He's saying, can you read the signs? My coming again. Read the signs. So, he says, wild times are ahead. And I thought about this passage this week a lot. I don't know where fig trees grow typically in the United States, but what little research I did, and I know I got some people, got some real green thumbs here. Uh, they need, it says, lengthy summertime, lots of sunshine, and mild winters. I'm like, well, that sounds like a pretty good place, a lotus, a lot of sun, you know, mild winters, except for last year, scratch that one off the history, of, or this year, you know, that was, you know, ice storm, never seen that in Texas. How many of you lost power, you know? Yeah, there you go. Shouldn't have lost power. God brings power to you every day. You fell for that one, didn't you? But I have decided, and Brenda doesn't even know this, that's always dangerous. Hey, Bryn, what do you think about us getting a fig tree and planting a fig tree? Not that we could have figs, but that it would be a daily reminder that Christ is coming again. And then I would need to take care of that fig tree because we both have non-green, th- we, we have no thumbs when it comes to plants. I mean, we're like, they die. You, you want to buy us a plant, really nice, bring it to our house, and about a week later, it's gone. But that would be a great opportunity to say it's a reminder that Christ is coming again, that I need to be involved in in that process of telling the world that he's coming again. I need to be in prayer. I need to be in, in a walk with my Lord daily. I need to know that he is with me so I can tell others that he's with me. So maybe there'll be a market on fig trees for all of you because there are wild times ahead, and these are the warning signs. And finally... Take watch. Take watch. As we take watch, read verse 32. Now, this is one that a lot of people wrap, around, wrap their time frames on, their predictions. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Some will focus on this generation. Was Jesus talking to those men and potentially women that were there? He was speaking to his disciples, but I'm sure there were others there that were listening to him. Was he saying, this generation will not pass? And as you know, the word generation, in fact, many of your Bibles may have a little footnote by it. It can be translated as in a lifetime, or it can be translated even as a race. In other words, the human race, this generation. So there are a lot who spend a lot of their lives, you know, uh, with, with stubby pencil and, and, or these days, I guess, with computers making predictions. And I grew up in the time of Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye, who, uh, if you remember the book, The Late Great, Great Planet Earth, I think it was released in 1988. Uh, or no, it was released. That's when the Lord was supposed to come back. 
was in 1988, according to that book. You know, it was great. I mean, they pieced a lot of scriptures together, a lot of Old Testament prophecies, and much of it had to do with the fact that um, they were seeing the uh, reconstitution of the state of Israel in 1948. Uh, and I think, as I think about that, maybe the book was written in early 70s, maybe 1970, 1971. But it predicted that Christ would come again by 1988. And that's, what, 33 years later. So the book was revised uh, with some new numbers. And uh, nothing against uh, the authors of that book whatsoever. But it does appear to me that so many people want to use the dating system, not as in a boy-girl, but dating, chronological system, to prove the Bible. God doesn't need my computations to prove that this is His Word. His Son came. He is the truth. It doesn't... In fact, one of the most debunking of the word of the text Luke doesn't say it in this part Jesus says no one knows the time but the father so listen carefully the bible doesn't need proof from our predictions to make it true the bible reveals god through his son's jesus and all that makes it true I would add that I believe many of these things uh, had taken place by the time the Bible was in print. Many, not all. You would know, those of you who studied uh, history, that Rome would destroy Jerusalem in 70 AD and that there would be much suffering uh, of Christians at that time. But I still say we live in a difficult time and trials and tribulations have been going on since that time. We've been living for nearly 2,000 years waiting and watching. And Christ could return today. No one knows. But how you live your life, how you're anticipating that, is what makes the difference for us today. William or Will Willimon is a... Uh, retired United Methodist bishop, and I've used some of his illustrations before because he speaks on that kind of down-home uh, illustration that speaks to me. And, and he was pastor in a larger church in Georgia, but he said he had attended a small country church funeral. You ever been to a small country church funeral where the preacher gets up and does some preaching? And he said, I found out when I went, he said it was totally different than what I was accustomed to in the city. He said, this preacher got up and he preached. That's all he was going to do. He was preaching. He was talking about Joe. Forgive me, the Joes that are out there. He kept talking about Joe and how Joe had no chance now to change his life. And Joe had never changed his life. And Joe, on and on and on, he kept talking about Joe. And Joe didn't have a chance or, or should have made the decision. And on and on. He said, but you have the chance to decide for Christ. And Woolman says, he went on and on. He goes, I can even tell you, the preacher said, I can even tell you if one time there was a funeral procession and a Greyhound bus ran a traffic light and it killed several people in the funeral procession. And he said, and if you haven't made a decision and that Greyhound bus hits you today on the way home, you'll be separated from Christ from all eternity. Woolman said he got in his car afterwards and he's talking to his wife. He said, that was the most manipulative 
He said, in your face presentation of the gospel I have ever heard, that man made fun of Joe. That man abused Joe. That man said that Joe should have done this and should have done that. And he looked at his wife and he said, what do you think? She said, yes, yes. It, it, it was very, it was emotional, very passionate. And she says, you know what? And he said, what? And she said, it was all true. If you have not accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, when he comes again, whether it's tonight or a hundred years from now, you will not join him in glory. You will be one of those separated for life or for eternity from him. So, let me close out with this little idea. And I know I'm, I'm looking at time and I'm, I'm trying to... We need to heed the warning signs and we need to take watch... Um, have, have you ever heard of um, the cons Advent conspiracy? I've heard of it over the years, and I've never done it in, or never um, advertised it or promoted it in a church. It, it began in about 2006, where a group of Christians got together and decided, after they learned that Americans spend over $500 million, billion dollars, I said million, billion dollars, past a million, I can't hardly count anyway, but $500 billion, somewhere in that, that gigantic figure on the holiday season. Let me check that. That billion sounds higher than I had that road down somewhere. It is billion. Gosh, $500 billion. So then it's, you know, of course, how I am. I started in searching other things. How much are we spending per family per year? Now, I'm not asking any of you what you plan on spending this year, but the American average that is predicted for 2021, this December, and it was down a little bit last year because of COVID, and it may still be down a little bit now, but they're predicting that the average American family will spend $1,000 per family on presents alone. That's not counting decorations. That's not counting food. That's not counting all the other things that go into this holiday event. So... The Advent conspiracy began in 2006 after they found out this gigantic number of what people spend was, what if we use that money for something else? They had found that at that time in 2006, there were, there were many people who were living without clean drinking water and that wells could be put in at a price well within that $500 billion range. So they challenged people to buy less and give more. And many churches, if you go uh, to churches that are practicing this, and this may be something we might want to look at next year, they actually give you a handout during the Advent season and say, join the Advent conspiracy to give more, buy less for yourself, and they give a list of the many things you could do in that particular church that they have mission programs, et cetera, et cetera. For example, we support... Global Gates in Canada, missionaries in Canada that are spreading the good news. We support those countries that's on the border and goes into Mexico uh, with the uh, Fernando Martinez, not that one, but his, his uh, dear cousin uh, that he's been down there with us to visit uh, him and Deborah Martinez. We also support like Pastor Rain in the Philippines who this week, and I'm sure Dan has got several emails, he's trying to raise $1,500 to buy an, audio, an outdoor audiovisual projector so they can do the Jesus story with the children that he's working with. 
We have so many. Lottie Moon, we just barely saw a slide on it if you were here early enough. Lottie Moon is the Southern Baptist Convention's program that collects money, and 100% of it goes back out to our missionaries that are spread around the world. It is our global, our international mission fund named after a missionary who gave her life basically in China, Lottie Moon. So many ways that you and I could give to others and be more Christ-like at Christmas. This passage talks about the anxieties. In fact, let me read this really quickly for you. Verse 34, be careful of your hearts or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and anxieties of life. And that day will close on you expectantly like a trap. To me, that's almost a commentary on the typical commercial Christmas. We get so excited or so wrapped around the axle that I haven't bought this gift. I haven't got the right light. I haven't got this. I haven't done that. Celebrations, I'm not picking on drunkenness, but I mean, that to me implies a, a, an enjoyment of the event that you miss the purpose of the event. And that's what so many people do at Christmas. Be always on the watch. Could we, if we conspired in this Advent conspiracy to buy less, give more, to help your neighbor or your coworker? What if we conspired to love one another. Yeah, that's like revolutionary thinking. I think Jesus said love one another. And you know what I'm talking about. You probably have conflict with a family member and you're not anticipating Christmas because you already had the conflict at your Thanksgiving dinner. Luckily, mine is tonight. Ours is this evening. <laughs> so, be no conflict at the Perry's unless Cliff burned the turkey. You know, something like that. But maybe you have a coworker that you've got a problem with, you've got an issue with. Maybe you've got a neighbor that he's mowed a little bit too into your yard one too many times. Or maybe they keep parking in front of your house instead of in front of theirs. Oh, that's painful. Depend, uh, I know where some of you live. Yeah. What if... We sought forgiveness and reconciliation throughout Advent. Don't let it simmer inside of you until it poisons you and makes your outlook on life more than any bah, hug, bah humbug type of attitude towards Advent. Because we serve a God who forgives. We serve a God who loves. We are to be awakened in this Advent for what he's done for us. You know, I looked through my closet this morning because I just knew I had a purple shirt. Lupe gave me a purple tie mm, three, four years ago, and I was going to wear it with that purple shirt. And then I couldn't find a purple shirt. Then I decided I didn't want to wear a white shirt with the purple tie. I'd have to tuck my, pant, my shirt in my pants because I'm getting too fat to do that. You know, that's why we wear them out like that. I just want you all to know. If you notice, like last year when I lost about 40 pounds, I was wearing my shirt tucked in. Now I gained about all that back, and the shirt's gone back outside. But here's a challenge for you. Is that purple you got on, Jay? Do you have purple on? Okay. Wear purple next week to church, or purple tie or something, because those of you who grew up in churches that have a little more formality than Baptists, that's what they typically, the, purple is the season of Advent. 
The altars are covered in purple. It's a reminder that the king is coming. Maybe you want to wear a purple shirt every day during the Advent season. Because the king is coming. So be on the alert. Take watch. Because wild times, they're coming. Stand with me, please, and we pray. Lord, as we uh, have just barely scratched the surface, knowing that there's so much more in this passage than I can ever bring out in one short sermon, but Lord, I pray that it has awakened some of us to the fact that our focus should be on you, not ourselves, especially at this Christmas season. Help us to learn how to give more versus take more. Forgive more. Love more. Be members and followers of a reconciling faith that draws us to one another as we are drawn to the one who loves us. Help the Advent season for each one of us to be opportunities to share the gospel. Imagine wearing a purple shirt to work and a friend says, why you got purple on? Because the king is coming. Do you know it, the king? And I'm not talking Elvis. Lord, I want us each to know that the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the prince of all princes has come and he's coming again. So if there's someone as we come now to a time of invitation, I'll be standing here in the front there's someone who would like to say, I, I, I've never accepted this Jesus you're talking about. And I feel the burden of trying to do it all and knowing I cannot. I can't save myself. Nothing I've tried has worked. Let me ask you, oh, troubled soul, to try Jesus. Lord, I pray that hearts would respond. If there's someone here who just wants to come to these steps and pray, we have others who will come and pray with them. Perhaps they want to come and talk about church membership. Lord, whatever decision you have to place in the hearts of these who have heard these words today, I ask you to let your spirit move and move now with the power that comes from glory. For I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.